The first song that we sang this morning as a part of our worship was Faith is the Victory that Overcomes the World. And that's taken from 1 John 5 verse 4, wherein there it directly says that even our faith is that which provides the victory over the world. Aren't we thankful for the element of faith, for the measure of encouragement and reality it provides? Isn't it good to be together on this Sunday morning today? One of the things that has already been announced, and certainly keep in mind that little change in tonight's service time so that we, we don't uh, accidentally miss that, but the 5 o'clock hour, we'll have a more abbreviated service this evening. A productive church. I entitled the lesson today, A Church That Is Productive. I suppose all of us have in our thinking a measure of productivity. We like to be productive. That is to say, we like to feel as if we're accomplishing things. I suspect all of us are that way. I believe it's fair to say that whenever a person finds him or herself in a position wherein they feel as if they aren't productive, they soon become rather despondent. They can often fall into despair, and often they lose a great deal of the fervor and zest that goes with life. We all like to be productive. Have you ever thought about a productive church? What does the Bible say about a church, a congregation of the Lord's people that's productive? You'll notice on that slide, at the bottom of it, that we'll close that introductory one with at least these very brief comments. Could I suggest that as we'll see shortly today, productivity is a rather careful and significant thing for the church. And the reason we say that is because the Bible teaches it. And therefore, it behooves us to know what that says. It's somewhat sad then to appreciate that there's a failure in this regard, isn't there? Maybe you've known of congregations that it was evident that they weren't very productive. And maybe over time the doors had to close. And maybe over time other things that were greatly harmful to the cause of Christ took place. Ephesians 3.21 will remind us about the treasure about the productivity and the great measure of our faith in that regard. With all of that said as an introduction, what are some things the Bible teaches us that are critical elements in any congregation being productive? May I suggest five of them. As we look at these one by one, we'll not develop a great deal in terms of each one, but what we shall do is at least make sure we appreciate what the Bible asserts concerning that element in this consideration, and then we will try to make application to ourselves. The critical element that surely must come first, any church that's productive will have to have Jesus Christ at the very center of what that congregation does. I say that because isn't that the key element that is the New Testament's teaching? Jesus, you and I realize, as Brother Colonel read a moment ago in Colossians 1, He was the agent that brought about the creation. That's what verse 16 of Colossians 1 pointed out to us. And inasmuch as that statement is made, He is the absolute head of the church. He is the head of the body. That means all that we ever do and all that we are now must revolve around Him due to His teaching, His instruction, His nature, and His being. Verse 18 of that very same chapter, Colossians 1, put it in these words, He is the head of the body. The church, 
who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, note the all, he might have the preeminence. That word preeminence means to be of the first rank, to be of the highest element in consideration. And therefore, whatever we as a congregation or any congregation that's productive is to do, whether it be in works of benevolence, works of evangelism, works of edification, it must center on Christ. We do this because it's what He would want me to do, what He'd want us to do. Isn't it any wonder then in that regard, the next verse brings us to chapter 3 of the same Colossian letter, verse 17. There didn't Paul so majestically say, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. Doesn't that mesh well with our understanding? Whatever you do in what you teach, in the curriculum that's chosen for the Bible classes, the messages delivered from the pulpit, the considerations of the Bible classes, even we as individuals personally, what we do or say, it must revolve around the authority of Jesus Christ. Now this element in terms of being a productive church shows itself in a number of examples in the New Testament. Maybe none rises higher than the Apostle Paul. I ask you to notice in 1 Corinthians 2, beginning in verse 1, as Paul addressed the church at Corinth, wasn't it true to them, he said, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We've all commented more than once, at least in our understanding, how that Paul was such a brilliant man in many ways. Schooled, educated, highly learned, and yet he plainly told the Corinthians, I have determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ. Everything I teach, preach, the all examples that I set, they will revolve around the mastery, the reality, and the certainty that goes with Jesus. May those be marching orders for you and me here at Pippin. May it be such that Jesus is the center of all that we are and all we ever hope to be. The last thing on that slide points you and me individually to make sure we implement that too. Not just congregationally, but individually. Colossians 2 verse 3 will make the declaration that we are complete in Him. Don't we all love the thought of being complete? The thought of being whole or entire? We will never be that way, separate and apart from Jesus. Finally, in Galatians 2.20, the last text we'll notice in light of this particular topic Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Jesus Christ as our center. Operating on that understanding and with that in place, notice then some other things that will readily follow. The next one I've entitled something that has to do with the Word of God. Scripture, any congregation that is to be productive will have to be thoroughly rooted and grounded and anchored 
in the implementation of the Word of God. Any congregation that strays far from the authority vested in this book will be a congregation that likely will lapse into falsehood and likely will fail mightily to be what the Lord would have it to be. So let's develop that point like this. The Bible is, in fact, the Word of God. That thought must be centered in our understanding. Not only we who are the older ones, but even those that are younger, it will be a tremendous matter in their understanding when they grow up to appreciate that fact. Failure in that regard will typically lead to unfaithfulness. It will lead to a life moving in a direction that is not good. Inasmuch as the Bible is the Word of God, what text could we consider more notably than 2 Timothy 3? The last two verses of that chapter remind us all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. You may notice so many things might be said about the Word of God based on that passage. But among other things, it's God-breathed. It is literally presented by the very breath of the God of heaven. And with that stated, how special is the Word of God? How powerful. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. With the Word of God, at least in that consideration placed before us, Notice, it's perfect. Now that fact mustn't be allowed to pass by us too quickly. Paul would make that statement in 1 Corinthians 13. Namely, the Word of God is complete. It's perfect. Never needs to be added to it. In fact, the Bible urges warnings to be noted concerning those who would add to the Word of God. Revelation 22, verses 18 through 21. The fact of that completeness leads us then to appreciate this. It is this book that is going to be opened at the judgment. How will you and I then stand when the Lord Jesus Christ opens this book and judges your life and mine by the precepts found in the sacred Word of God? That's the reason we lift it so highly. It is authoritative. It is absolutely authoritative. There is no room for men to insert their own speculations along with it. Jesus said, Those who try so make their worship vain. Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9. The final thoughts. Then for that slide encourages us to note this. If we are convinced of the authority of the Bible, that means we must never go beyond it. Now, I say that this way because there are those who throughout the ages have felt as if they were in a position to legislate for the God of heaven. We'll make laws comparable to His, and we will make laws that stand on equal footing to His. That's wrong. The Bible is the Word of God, and we dare not go beyond it. Doesn't the New Testament teach that in 2 John verse number 9? as well as 1 Corinthians 4, verse number 6. Perhaps it is in that light. We enjoy an unbending devotion to the truth of God. That'll be a key element in making any church productive. 
Now, these two points that have come first have centered first of all on the Word of God and centered on Jesus the Christ. I'm sure we might wonder, what about the other three points? As implementations of these, point number three, given the teaching of the New Testament, we surely would be quick to say that another element so often listed along with these others that will make a congregation that is productive has to do with its leadership. I'm sure we expected this, for we have seen it too often even in secular applications, haven't we? A company that is productive will have strong and forceful leadership with a vision. Not only that, in other walks of life, a civic organization that is productive will have to have some element in leadership that motivates them in the right way, encourages them in the right way. Are we surprised that the New Testament has some things to say concerning those matters relative to the church? Let's develop some of those points on this slide. We'd be quick to say that though I listed some elements of examples like businesses and things, the leadership in the church as presented in the New Testament is very different than leadership of a business or leadership of some other civic organization. The New Testament's leadership vested in the eldership is a leadership that, of course, meets qualifications as so directly given in 1 Timothy 3. But it also is a leadership that is based on different premises. For instance, in, in society, someone who is rather wealthy may be considered, you see, a powerful leader and someone worthy of being followed. But you may notice the qualifications don't list anything about wealth. Materialistic success has nothing to do with godliness in the sense of choosing men like that to be the leaders of the church. But you will quickly note this. Elders are going to lead the way. They are told, notice in Acts 20, 28, "...take heed to yourselves." and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Notice, they're overseers. They see over us. They watch for our souls, Hebrews 13, 17. They, in fact, not as lording it over the flock, 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 4, but they of a willing heart take the mantle of leadership in a congregation. As they do that, they love us because they love our souls. They want more than anything else to encourage and lead us toward the golden shores of heaven. Maybe it is in that light. They are going to lead the way in any congregation that's productive when it comes to the work of the church. It will be their vision that puts in place programs of benevolence, programs of evangelism, programs of edification. They will see to it, you see, that those kinds of things are encouraged and that members are those who are motivated to serve with incentive in those areas. They strive to use the talents of the flock over which they oversee to carry out those authorized works of the New Testament. As you can see on that slide, they surely have a principal task. Peter directly, as himself an elder, told them, Feed the flock. 1 Peter 5, verses 2 and 3. Notice that the church is called a flock in that case. 
Have you ever thought about yourself as one member of a bunch of sheep? And yet, elders are called pastors. That's those who, like a shepherd, watch over a flock of sheep. You and I, you see, might lose our way. You and I might, in fact, not see properly the things and dangers before us. But the elders with vision keep careful watch on their souls, and they watch with care for ours. They strive to feed the flock. Material that's true and wholesome and sound and complete because they trust with greatness the statement that Paul himself made, I shun not to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Acts 20, verses 20 and following. As the elders thus carry out those, you can imagine what a powerful imprint they will have on a congregation as they exhibit leadership like this. Aren't you impressed with the leadership of the church at Jerusalem in the opening chapters of the book of Acts? There the church began in Jerusalem, and yet as the apostles led that congregation at the outset, you remember that they dealt with problems when they arose, Acts chapter 6. They dealt with opposition when it arose, Acts chapter 5. They dealt with those circumstances connected with the carrying out of the work of that church, Acts chapters 4 and 5. We find in that some strong elements of leadership. As you and I close that slide, notice some particulars then that fall under those headings. Elders will keep a close eye and ear open for any error that might cause problems for the flock, and they will take care of it quickly because it may germinate and spread, and it may ultimately cause some problems to arise, and so they will deal with it swiftly. Isn't that what Paul told Timothy to do in the books of First and Second Timothy? Not only that, they will, of course, have a careful understanding about the works and the kind of vision and programs that can make those things happen. Where there is no vision, the people err, or there is a lacking of the carrying out of those things necessary. Having looked at the third element, what about the fourth one? What else would be true of a church that's productive? They have a careful and clear concern. The souls of people. The church is not in merely the business of maintaining a building or maintaining a particular program of benevolence. Now, those things are wonderful, and they carry out some powerful assessments. But just as Jesus said, What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? We can, feed, we can fill their stomach. We can put clothes on their back. We can do any number of other things that may assist them in that way. But what have we really accomplished if they end up lost? And so the elders will have a key interest in the souls of people. So all the work that they do will ultimately revolve around that topic. We have this program in benevolence not just to fill their stomach, but so that we might ultimately set before them the example of truth and that we might have the opportunity to bring them to the Lord. We have this edification idea in place, and yet not merely to strengthen the faithful, but so that we can keep their soul close to Jesus and they can one day go home to glory. 
we have this program, if you please, in evangelism, so that we could proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ, Ephesians 3.8, and do that in a way to bring these souls to the Lord. Every work of the church, whatever you want to call it, will ultimately have an attachment to the souls of people. That's why the elders look with such care and why each of us should do the same. About the middle of that slide, we'll be quick to say that this kind of approach will not be popular in many places. It wasn't popular in the Lord's day either, was it? In John 15, 19, He rather plainly said, The world has hated me, and they're going to hate you too. And so a church that adopts ideas like this and that has that focus in place, it will not be the most popular church in town. It will not be the congregation to which large people flock because it's not going to be centered on entertainment. It's going to be concerned about souls and concerned about truth and concerned about godliness and concerned about leading people to heaven. And entertainment's not going to do that. And providing for the other means that the world so often clamors for is not going to be a critical part in that. No wonder Paul stated in urgency in light of those topics, didn't he? Woe is it to me if I preach not the gospel, 1 Corinthians 9.16. And oh, how wonderful were those words when we read in Luke 3 verse 30 that Jesus, near the beginning of His public ministry, He realized how needful was the message, and He said, we need to go to other cities. There are people who need to hear what we've got to say. Therefore, we look with excitement on the works we can do for the cause of Jesus Christ our Lord. So far as we've talked about the Word of God, we've reflected on Jesus, and we've talked about the eldership, and we've now highlighted a concern that we have with souls. Number five, I'm sure you might could add additional particulars to this, but may I offer one that it seems is worthy of thought because it has offered no small amount of difficulty for the development of a congregation and it has rendered them unproductive. It has to do with this. A congregation that does not understand the difference between opinion of men and command of God. Now, we hinted at somewhat that earlier, but perhaps it's needful for some more detail. Some matters have been absolutely revealed by the Word of God. That means we have no option. If we're to please God, we must do this. For example, the assembly of the saints came to be an issue a bit over a year ago. It ought never have been. Because God commands assemblies, and those assemblies are described... And when those who chose to do things differently, albeit not consistent with the Word of God, that certainly could lead many to ultimately stray from the elements of truthfulness. Now that leads us perhaps to note that second idea. As many things are prescribed in the Word of God, that means they are timeless. They must be that way until time shall be no more. If that congregation is to be pleasing... And acceptable. It's almost as if they are unmovable anchors of that which God expects to tie the placement of men and churches to where it ought to be. The sweetness of that thought, though, 
now leads us to know, what if men tries to loose some of those ideas? To perhaps take matters in the Word of God and move it to a place where it's not a requirement or change it in some way. Many times people through the ages have not only attempted to do this, but in some circles, in some congregations, they've succeeded. And of course, over a short amount of time, it is a watershed event. If you question the authority of God in one area, it's only a small step to question it in some other area, and then some other area, and then some other area, and before you know it, there is very little that is favorable between what the church ought to be and what it actually has become. A congregation has to understand that there is a difference between human opinion and the commands of the God of heaven. Now, one application of that is going to be matters of expediency. There are some things that the Word of God has said we need to do, but He hasn't told us exactly all the details of how it's to be done. That means He leaves us to make some choices and decisions in the implementation. A faithful congregation and a productive one will recognize that difference. But perhaps finally, we will seek any productive congregation to understand that you have to be careful providing a test for fellowship. Will we fellowship this person or that congregation? Will any congregation that recognizes truthfully the things of God will make careful understanding and use those fellowship tests in the Word of God to make that determination? Not what we think, not what we prefer. That fifth point perhaps closes with this idea. In that fourth point, we noted the statements of the Lord were unpopular in His day in the circles of many people. And we can rest assured that they shall be unpopular in the circles of many people today. And therefore, a productive church will not use success in human circles as a litmus test of proficiency, efficiency, or productivity. Now, you and I know well that many have organized worship in such a way to please men. Paul said, if I do that, I'm not pleasing Christ, Galatians 1 verse 10. Today, I know that we here would like to be a productive congregation, just surely as any congregation would. Because isn't it true, we are told we are supposed to bring forth fruit unto God. One last thing in the lesson today will be yours. In Philippians 4.19, Paul made reference to the account of the Philippian church. And by that I mean there was an account, a ledger if you please. If you're familiar with accounting, an account was being kept and in it was being recorded the productivity attached to the church at Philippi. May I ask, what about the account attached to the Pippin Church of Christ? Are we productive? Would the Lord provide a stamp of success and a great deal of commendation upon us? May I suggest if not, then one or more of these five, perhaps we ought to with earnestness seek to put in place so that we could be hailed as one of the productive congregations upon whom the Lord would look with great favor. I would say in the opening three chapters of the Revelation, 
seven churches in Asia were described. Seven churches in Asia were presented, and of that number, five of them were very unfavorable for one reason or another. Some of them were unfaithful. Some of them had given their attention to false teachers like a Jezebel, as was the church at Thyatira. Some of them were dead, like the church at Sardis. Some of them were worldly, like the church at Laodicea. Some of them, you see, had left their first love, like the church at Ephesus. But the church at Philadelphia, oh, how they were commended. And the fact is, they were tiny. Here was a small congregation. They didn't have 5,000 members. We don't know how many they had. may have been 50. may have been 25. may have been 5. We don't know how many they had. But the Lord said, you're small, but yet they were mighty. It doesn't take a lot of people to be strong as long as the Lord is with you. Aren't we taught in Romans 8, 31, if the Lord be for us, who could be against us? Today, I trust that we can close our lesson with just a brief reminder of what it means to be an effective, productive church. The five things we've discussed, centered on Christ, based on the Word of God and its authority, a careful understanding of the worth and value of souls, the implementation of the Word of God fully and not the the commands of men, and finally, the understanding that goes with a leadership that provides vision for the programs that the Lord endorses. Today, are you a complement to a congregation that's strong? If you individually are weak, if you individually are unfaithful, you can't be a contributor to a faithful congregation. You need to repent. If you are a wayward child of God today, don't you want to come back and be a part of this productive church? We'd love to assist you, to help you, You need to repent of your sins and confess them, and we'll be delighted to pray to God on your behalf. If you've never become a Christian, why not today? If you know the Lord died for you, but you've never rendered obedience to His initial commands in the gospel, you need to hear the words that He has delivered. Believing to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. We would be delighted and happy to celebrate with you today if that would be the need of your life and you would carry forth that very work. If any of these things would be the needfulness of your particular situation today, don't delay. Come now while together we stand and sing.